This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. There was an announcement scheduled for 11 a.m. in regard to tariffs on steel and aluminum going into the United States. uh, And there was lots of chatter about this, uh, especially up in this neck of the woods. People are very concerned about how this will affect steel uh, production in this country. Uh, But boy, look at that. Uh, Just as, you know, as, as quick as the saber rattling starts. Uh, it subsides. Don't want to use the analogy of a boy cried wolf here, but here we go again. It was uh, subsequently canceled and changed to a listening session with no discussion on tariffs. Obviously, they would have great effect to the Hamilton area. To talk more about all of this, Keenan Loomis is with us, president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. He's with us now. Keenan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So any surprises here? How do you interpret what just came down today? Well, yeah, I woke up to the uh, bat phone blinking. Uh, there was a flurry of activity going on in uh, Washington, and the expectation was that the president would make his announcement today in terms of uh, the path he was going to choose uh, going forward for global steel. And uh, it apparently he was going to impose tariffs across the board to all steel imported from all countries, including uh, from Canada. And that would, ha- that would have been the worst possible outcome for Canada. So we started to mobilize and uh, got a lot of media lined up, including with you. And then all of a sudden, um, we heard that, uh, in fact, there will be no announcement today. Apparently, the president is in a bad mood. So, uh, you know, this uh, whim-based policymaking is, is just ridiculous. And it's having a huge impact in, uh, in Hamilton and causing a lot of consternation. Of course, businesses don't like... Uh, this type of uh, insecurity. So, um, you know, but the, the thing is, it's not the boy c- crying wolf because eventually yeah, there so, will be an announcement right. coming from Washington. So, you know, we're just getting ready for, for that and, and hopefully uh, cooler heads will prevail in D.C. Why did this all start today? Why now? Um, uh, you know, it, it, it seems that coolers, cooler heads have prevailed and each has gone back to its respective corner to get more information. Is this just part of the dance? Well, how, how do you describe so. this? So, yeah, there's so much going on right now. You know, obviously there's Buy American and there's NAFTA, but this has actually nothing to do with that. But of course, it's completely intertwined with all of those actions. This is a, uh, a to get really into the weeds here. This is a Section 232 review. Uh, basically, when the president came into office, he uh, charged his Department of Commerce with um, evaluating um, whether. Uh, the U.S. should opt out of uh, long-established trade rules and, and start to protect uh, the U.S. steel industry. And other presidents have tried this in the past, but they've determined that there's going to be far too much of an impact on uh, on the on the the domestic market because prices are going to go up. And, and with automobiles, uh, food production, there's a lot of uh, Canadian steel. In fact, steel steel right from Defasco uh, here in Hamilton that uh, goes into uh, making cans in the U.S. Pretty much all the steel uh, in all the cans in the U.S. Uh, comes from right here in Hamilton. So um, other uh, presidents have looked at this, threatened this, but uh, of course seen that there's going to be uh, way too much of an impact domestically. But uh, of course, this president is different. So why the bluster then the retreat? What, what, what's the reason given for retreating on this for now or putting so, it on hold? Yeah, so the Department of Commerce uh, returned with its report in uh, in January to the president, and so he has 90 days to, to pick uh, 
um, a course of action. And uh, the Department of Commerce laid out three uh, potential courses of action. Um, one would be, like I said, a, a blanket uh, 24% tariff on all steel imports from all countries. Another was to target 12 countries that we're basically saying are non-market economies, so Brazil, China, Turkey, and other Asian uh, markets. And then um, uh, then the other option, the third option, was to um, uh, place a quota on all steel products from all countries. Uh, equal so to, sec- uh, second, obviously, yeah. best for us. Yeah, the second is is best for us, but there is also a uh, a cap on all imports uh, going forward from Canada. So basically, ArcelorMittal DeFasco or, or U.S. Steel would not be able to um, broaden uh, the uh, amount of steel that they send into the U.S. So it would it would have an impact. Um, we're also arguing for a complete exemption from uh, from this uh, because Canada is so tightly integrated into the supply chain, you know, especially with the automobile market, and so there really doesn't appear to be any understanding of that, of uh, the impact again uh, to uh, the domestic U.S. market. Uh, so you said this is inevitable. What are you expecting, uh, if not now, maybe a month from now? Well, again, we woke up this morning expecting the worst of all the outcomes. And um, so apparently there's a, a lot going on internally within the White House. There's uh, we, we actually have some eyes and ears uh, that are in the White House right now um, because there are a number of industry executives uh, that are meeting. Um, and, uh, you know, we're told that there's a, a faction within the administration that is trying to talk him down from uh, the 24 percent uh, tariff on all steel imports. So hopefully uh, he's lear- you know heard that message and and will be choosing some other um, form of action. But uh, of course we have absolutely no idea. Does he have any uh, validity here? Any point here? W- what's his end game? And can you see that and prepare for it? Well, there is a, there is a point in terms of, and we've been talking about this for a long time here in Canada, is that you know our exports are are challenged by the fact that there are a lot of non-market economy uh, imports uh, going into the U.S. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, steel producers from overseas that don't abide by the same labor and environmental standards that we do, um, that uh, you know is is sold below market. So basically, uh, steel dumping, and it's been an issue in North America for a really long time. And so that affects Canada you know, as much as it does the it, United States. Well, completely, it it does. And so we have been arguing against this. Um, but the problem is that, uh, of course, all of the out, uh, outcomes outlined by, or potential outcomes outlined by the uh, uh, Department of Commerce report, all of them have some sort of impact on uh, on Canada. So, like I said, we are trying to seek an exemption, but um, that appears to uh, be taking a backseat right now, and we're just trying to mitigate uh, the damage. Is this coming to a head sooner than later? This will come to a head sooner or later. And, and you know, I, I have to point out that um, regardless of, of what outcome is chosen here, we also have a whole uh, future uh, big issue on the, the fact that there will be a, a lot of diverted steel now, uh, regardless of what outcome the U.S. Uh, chooses and, and the president chooses here. There's going to be about uh, 13 uh, million tons of steel that are going to be finding, looking to find a home. And we have to protect ourselves domestically and, and make sure that uh, 
Um, we don't allow dump steel into Canada because even if we're exempted from all of these rules, if a whole lot of uh, non-market steel is coming into Canada, then every single shipment from Canada into the U.S. is going to be scrutinized uh, to ensure that it is uh, domestically produced steel. How do you enforce this? How does North America, whether Canada or the United States, stop this dumping, which, again, is, it's been talked about for years here? Yeah, well, first of all, we need regulatory har- harmony. Um, so, you know, the it would be nice to have the same rules as as the U.S. Um, when they do seek to prevent non-market steel coming in uh, to their country. But we also have to uh, enact proactive uh, enforcement measures. And there's all kinds of things that the government can do. The government did a little bit uh, last year in terms of allowing companies like Tefasco to, to bring uh, trade remedies. But th- those things are way too slow. What we need is for the government itself to be proactively uh, ensuring that steel, uh, dump steel is not coming into Canada and that uh, it's, uh, it's initiating enforcement actions on its own so that we don't have to go through all of the, uh, the company uh, enforcement actions. Again, that just takes a whole lot longer. If Trump decides he doesn't want steel being dumped into the U.S., does that mean Canada is susceptible to it? It's not going there, so there's more chance of it coming here. Completely. And, and, you know, the, the expectation is that much of it will start to come uh, either here uh, or go into Mexico so that it can go into the U.S. market. Um, and what we're also seeing is that Europe uh, is starting to step up um, and uh, see this as a threat to their domestic uh, steel industries as well. So they are starting to threaten uh, action against dump steel, and, and then that would make us uh, and Mexico, um, you know, the targets for uh, this non-market steel. So this is what we're we're certainly concerned about is the escalation here, and um, and we need to make sure that we're acting uh, in lockstep with those other countries that are looking to protect their domestic markets. As you mentioned, something eventually will happen. What will that mean for the steel industry here? Well, it, it's certainly going to be a challenge. And, you know, we know that the economy here uh, relies upon the steel industry still. Uh, obviously, you know, we don't have nearly as many people employed in this industry because of uh, modernization, but uh, it still has a huge impact uh, locally. There's about $2 billion uh, in local procurement uh, coming out of the steel industry uh, here in Hamilton. And uh, there's about, uh, ArcelorMittal reckons that it supports about 20,000 jobs here locally, tens of thousands of other jobs um, relied upon by other uh, steel uh, industry um, companies here in Hamilton. There's a lot of other smaller companies um, that uh, employ a lot of people when you add it all up and and then, again, have uh, further uh, downstream effects within the economy. So we are very concerned about uh, what this is going to mean to the Hamilton economy, and that's why we're ready to speak out. We have everybody uh, ready to mobilize, including at the OCC, or the Ontario Chamber of Commerce and Canadian Chamber of Commerce level. We're uh, rattling um, the cages in, uh, in Ottawa as well. Um, we know that uh, we need to be uh, absolutely vigilant on this file. It sounds like uh, all the rest of the files under the umbrella of NAFTA. It, it sounds like the struggle we're having in all of these industries. Well, yeah, as I said, this is this is separate from NAFTA, but completely intertwined. Yeah. It's just like how you know software uh, or softwood lumber, um, and so many other issues. Um, again, all at the whim of uh, uh, of you know a, a moody person, and uh, obviously this. Uh, 
this this form of policy making is just absolutely ridiculous, as I said. And, uh, you know, we're concerned, obviously. Keenan Loomis has been with us, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Keenan, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Twelve twenty-three. Let's bring in uh, the vice president of corporate affairs for ArcelorMittal DeFasco. Tony Valeri is with us now. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, what are your thoughts, not only in what is coming down, but in the way it has come down over the last twenty-four hours or so? And now it appears it's it's hurry up and wait. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess the first I became aware of this, I think there was a Washington Post article last night that indicated that an announcement was pending, and then we were kind of following it this morning to kind of get an understanding of whether it would come to fruition. And then we started to hear there was a bit of misalignment in terms of the timing, and I guess uh, the most recent information that I've heard is that there will be a meeting this morning with uh, U.S. steel executives and aluminum uh, executives to talk about the 232, but uh, but but no announcement. So, uh, and, and although I also read a tweet this morning that talked about uh, you know the desire for for some change with respect to uh, to the trading relationship, um, you know, I, I obviously as as we uh, we 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 listen for for what may come. We we our focus is to continue to work with. Uh, the Canadian government. Uh, you know, we still believe that Canada uh, should uh, should get an exemption uh, from the 232. We're not. We're certainly not a security risk. Uh, we are partners uh, in in the steel trade. Our our trade, in fact, is essentially in balance in terms of the movement of product that goes across uh, across the border. The supply chains are very much interconnected. Uh, parts move across our borders uh, seven, eight times in the automotive sector before their final assembly. And so we continue to work on two fronts. One is to push for that exemption. And secondly uh, is to deal with any potential diversion that may come as a result of the president uh, initiating uh, any 232 action against any countries who are now shipping to the United States and uh, if they're shut out of the United States, they will look for other markets. And so we're working with our government to ensure that we're prepared to deal with this uh, with this diversion. You talked about, use the term misalignment. Uh, why not have these talks before you make such announcements? Is this not destabilizing to the industry? Well, I, I you know, I, I think I think it is in the sense that, uh, you know, people have been waiting. Certainly folks in the United States have been waiting for, for a long time for this 232 announcement, there's been a lot of stop-start. And certainly anytime there's a, a uncertainty uh, in the market, then it, it does it does start to uh, impact markets. People uh, hesitate uh, on, you know, investments or they hesitate on, on whether, uh, you know, they're placing orders or not. They place them, or, you know, in anticipation of an announcement or they delay in anticipation of the, of the announcement. So certainly, I think, uh, when there is uncertainty in the market, it does impact uh, behavior, and uh, you know we're we're certainly uh, you know reading about that in in, in the U.S. market. Uh, this is obviously a delay or a postponement at this time. Anything on a timeline, and are you preparing for the worst? Well, uh, you know the the president does have until April to to make uh, the announcement. Uh, he has three recommendations uh, in front of him. Uh, a recommendation that that is not there is that for the president uh, can choose to do nothing, 
uh, as well, or he can choose to do something else, right? These are recommendations. It is in the, the president's uh, full discretion to ultimately uh, uh, implement 232 in tariffs and quota uh, or either or the way uh, he sees fit. Uh, we continue, as I said, to work with uh, with our association, the Canadian Steel Producers Association, and the Government of Canada to inform them uh, that um, you know of what the poss- of what the possible implications may be. The goal of the of the Commerce uh, Department in the United States is to move the steel industry to an eighty percent capacity utilization in the United States. That means a displacement of about thirteen million tons of steel that's presently going into the United States. Uh, and so we're concerned about potential diversion. Uh, once countries are shut out of the United States uh, through 232 action, and we need to make sure that the Canadian market is prepared uh, to ensure we don't be the recipient of this dumped offshore steel. Is the, government doing, enough, is the government doing enough to assure that, Tony? Well, I, the, we, the government is, is uh, we continue to dialogue with the government. Uh, you know, my understanding is the government continues to outreach uh, to the U.S. administration to put the case forward for exemption. Uh, they are looking at uh, what are uh, the tools that we have at our, at our disposal. Uh, from our perspective, we're saying not only do we need to look at the tools uh, that are readily available, but what else is it uh, that we might be able to do to ensure that Canada is not the recipient of offshore steel that is being now diverted from the United States to Canada and impacting our, our steel market? So lines of communication are very clearly open, uh, and we're working together to ensure that Canada is not adversely impacted. Tony Valeri has been with us, ArcelorMittal DeFasco, Vice President of Corporate Affairs. Tony, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A lot of ways to get a hold of us. Feel free. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. You can always send us a note at scottthompson at 900chml.com. Facebook and Twitter as well. All right, let's talk about the uh, Me Too movement, uh, of course, uh, originating in the entertainment industry, taking off from there, and, of course, uh, changing the dialogue on uh, sexual misconduct issues uh, across North America. And lots were wondering when it was going to make its way into the land of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, That, of course, being popular music. Uh, The band Headley has decided to go on an indefinite hiatus once the current tour is done. This is due to allegations that continue to come forward against them. Uh, Do we have the clip? Uh, The latest one is a uh, Calgary radio host who, uh, I I believe it's 90.3 Amp in Calgary, who told her story of uh, being much younger and meeting the band. We'll play this for you now. An encounter uh, with this person. This person who sings in this band uh, made a really inappropriate comment to me and also touched me inappropriately. And that person was Jacob Hogard from Headley. So I wasn't ready in that moment to talk about it because, (laughs) I mean, it's the same thing that anybody feels. I wasn't going to be that person. Yeah. I wasn't going to be the whistleblower. I don't want to ruin someone's career. And look, I'm as guilty as anyone else in feeling in that moment 
when it happened, I'll get into it in a minute, but in that moment, I really just chalked it up to obnoxious behavior. I was like, okay, what a jerk. Yeah. Like, now, it's, sorry, I'm like, ugh. It's also important to uh, note that he, I'm sure, does not remember this. Like, we're talking about a guy who does a million interviews, right. a million radio stations, but I remember it. Because we had just seen him a couple months previous. Right. So... Seven years ago, I was working here at Amp Radio, maybe three, four months. I was doing the evening show, mm-hmm. and uh, they were in doing an interview, and I was so starstruck. Like, I was so excited because I had been a Headley fan since I was in college. They, yeah. The first time I ever saw them perform was at Sate, and uh, I was lucky enough to be let into the studio. My coworker was like, hey, come on in. Like, come in and meet them, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was very, in that moment, I thought maybe he might have been on something because he was very manic and acting very sort of crazy. And yeah. uh, he was sweating a lot and his eyes were quite red. And But of course, in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, he's a rock star. This yeah. is so cool. Yeah. Uh, and so they did the interview, whatever they came over. Uh, I asked if I could be a part of the photo op. And, uh, you know, I met Jacob and I said, hey, like, I have been a fan of you for a long time. I saw you at Sate, and and uh, he was like, oh, cool. Well, you know, maybe if you're lucky, I'll let you come out into the back alley with me. And I mean, I don't want to say it because it's graphic, but right. it, he basically said I could give him oral sex if I was lucky. All right. There you have it. Uh, a story from a Calgary radio personality uh, in regard to the band Headley. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR, pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. And as I mentioned, the band Headley has decided uh, to take an indefinite hiatus once their current tour uh, comes to an end. Alyssa, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me on. We've talked about this in the past. Uh, it hit the entertainment industry. It moved into politics. It's, it, it, of course, is making its way into private industry as well. Uh, the Grammys, uh, there wasn't as much of a, present, a presence of this movement as there was certainly on the Golden Globe, uh, Globes and such. Is this the table turning for the music industry? Yes, it is, absolutely. And it's starting with Headley, but it's, it remains to be seen what happens to more of those high-profile bands, such as the Rolling Stones, Kiss, you know, all those guys who've been wreaking havoc for decades. But, you know, Headley is a very um, made-in-Canada story. He was a major finalist on Canadian Idol. He was a local boy who had done good. So this is quite a shock to everybody, but the fallout has been swift. But his response has been interesting, too. Talk about that and his response. It certainly sounds like there's remorse there. Well, at first it was, listen, we are rock stars and we engaged in the typical rock star behavior. That was the first response. And that's like, okay, boys will be boys. Oh, Scott, I cannot tell you how tired I am of hearing that. Mm -hmm. That is not an excuse and it is not a defense that boys will be boys. You know, boys need to know that they need to respect women, whether they're rock stars or they're whatever. So that obviously fell flat, very flat. And it fell flat because they dismissed him from the Junos, and then they, his uh, promoters dropped him, and his record label dropped him. So it all happened in very, very swift order. So whatever that you know that response was not the right type of response. Um, now he is on tour. He's going to finish his tour, and then they're going to lay low. So that was more of what you would expect without the part of we're going to go finish our tour. Well, they use the excuse for finishing the tour that, you know, uh, people are employed here, we've got plans, blah, 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 blah. Does that cut it? 
Or do you just do you just shut you know, do you just shut down the whole circus and take the tent pegs and go home? Well, I think that it's interesting because I'd like to know what the ticket sales are, and I don't think they're releasing that information. And if they had sold tickets, you know, or will this increase the sale of tickets, knowing we're not going to see them again for a while? Cosby. So let's just Mm. let's just use that. But you know, here's the thing: we talk about this movement, and when you see movements that are organic and that rise from the grassroots, you, you see how the process of it starts to. Um, work itself out organically. So first of all, we see Me Too. And that comes out very, very splashy. And then more and more women come out and support Me Too with their own stories. And then lots of men are taken down because of their inappropriate behavior. And there's not a lot of self-defense. Well, now we're in the trajectory of this movement where you are starting to see self-defense, where you're starting to see I'm innocent until proven guilty. So you may um, have a charge against me, but you better be really buttoned down in it like we saw with Ryan Seacrest uh, in the last uh, 36 mm-hmm. hours. So you better be really buttoned down because I'm not going anywhere. And besides, with Ryan Seacrest, a woman actually asked for $15 million not to tell her story. And he said, well, I'm not paying that, so sorry. So, you know, we're starting to see how it all shakes out from the accusers and the accused. Uh, why this ban and not others, as you've pointed out? I mean, this has been going on for a long time. You go back to the Rolling Stones days, Mick Jagger, known for this. Why this ban, not others? Is this just the first domino to drop? Well, uh, you know, that's a really good question. And I think that well-established bands have been paying women lots and lots and lots of money over the years to make sure that this doesn't happen. And I don't know that for sure, but, you know, I can tell you that um, Mick Jagger has been a father many times over. Uh, you know, I think he's got a different kid from every decade for the last four or five decades. So, you know, there's that. It, it's really the luck of the draw. It really depends, Scott, on who wants to come forward. So at first you had like these very sort of, you know, you had these allegations against Headley from, you know, women who were 14 and 15 at the time. But then, you know, you get uh, this radio personality out in Calgary who details it very, very um, articulately. And, you know, she has some credibility. She's been on air for quite a while. She's certainly been in the industry for quite a while, and she's starting to to talk. So, you know, some people think, you know, gee, these women are being opportunists. You know, they're looking for their 15 minutes of fame. But can I assure you that nobody wants to tell their story of sexual inappropriateness for 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. Um, is this a numbers issue? Why Headley? Why not Ryan Seacrest or others that have had maybe just one accusation made? Um, I think it is, you know, when you start to get a buildup of accusations, people tend not to dismiss it. Also, there's a big difference between Ryan Seacrest and Headley. Ryan Seacrest can be considered a mogul. You know, he's the one, for better or for worse, brought us the Kardashians. And he started off on American Idol. Well, he should lose his career just for that alone, Alyssa. Well, there you go. But there's a lot of people <laughs> who thank him for that. But So he does have a lot of clout and credibility. But the other thing, too, is... So did now, Bill Cosby, though. Well, Regis, uh, Regis, you know, <laughs> Ryan is now with... Um, he Kelly. will be Regis once he gets older. Well, he will be, but Ryan's now on Kelly. So here he is on a show from 9 to 10 a.m., directed straight at stay-at-home moms, middle America, really, really safe. You know, don't go to either extreme about anything, but stay right in the middle. And so this, um, you know, this tends to... Yeah, you know, put a little veneer about that and, and not in a good way. The other thing, too, is is that he's going, he's, you know, still at this point going to be on the red carpet for the Oscars. And, you know, with the Me Too movement, very strong in the uh, entertainment industry and women showing up in black for that very reason, 
that should be even more interesting to watch than the fashions. What, you know, getting back to uh, how this affects rock and roll or pop music or whatever you want to call it, is this image now changing? Are, are we about to see uh, the end of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era? And that being said, uh, you know, again, you watch the first hour of the Grammys, there was not one mention of the Me Too movement. And, uh, you know, in the hip-hop genre, there's lots of misogyny. You know, do I think it's the end of sex, drugs, and rock and roll? I would say never. Yeah. Never, because there's people who but how does this be affect part of something that is bigger than themselves. How does this affect the hip-hop world, though? Again, you could, you could pass this off as an old, uh, an old white guy's rock and roll kind of movement, uh, thinking, way of thinking, uh, the, you know, days gone by. But again, it, it's still as prolific in today's pop music as it, as it was back then, even more so. You know, when you ask about, you know, what about hip-hop, you know, you, it'd be easy enough to ask, well, you know, what about easy listening? What about top 40? What about country music? You know, I don't think that um, inappropriate behavior against women is relegated to any sort no, of genre. No, but it certainly is in the lyrical content of the music. Well, and I, as, listen, Scott, as long as that music keeps selling, yeah. then it's never going to stop. Until people don't buy it anymore, people don't download it anymore. Does the music support that? Does the music ex- uh, support that lifestyle, though? Does does the music support that way of thinking? You could absolutely make that correlation. People have been, ma- you know, pornographers have been making that correlation for years with very explicit music music videos. Lyrics can have the absolute same um, effect, where people look at it as well. This is the way the world is. This is the way they live, and I want to live that way too. What about, and someone sent a note in on this, what about the groupies? What about the ones that throw themselves at, at bands like Headley? And, and, and how, how does that play a factor into this? Well, I think from now on they're going to have to sign non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> yeah, really? Everybody backstage <laughs> sign this first? I do it. All right. Uh, what, uh, and I want to get off Headley and ask you about the NRA stuff real quickly here. But uh, one last question on Headley. What do they have to do to move this forward? Is it possible? Are they done? No, I don't think anybody's ever done. I think people like to see sort of a rise from the ashes type of story. I think they they need to to lay low. And I think that they need to show that they're doing something about their actions. They need to maybe say that they've been doing therapy. They need maybe do community hours. Maybe write a song about it. What? Maybe write a song about it. Maybe write a song. No, I think that would be seen as opportunism. You know, go work in a woman's shelter. You know, do this work, but don't necessarily do it to great fanfare. Do it because... You're, you're trying to rehabilitate the image of yourself and the band. So they need to show that they have made progress or even an attempt um, to show that they have changed their ways. All right, I got to ask you about the gun issue in the United States. Uh, it even seems like Donald Trump is, is, is saying, hey, what's your problem? What are you scared of the NRA for? Uh, uh, obviously, Walmart and Dick Sporting Goods have decided they're not going to carry uh, weapons that soldiers would use. What does this mean? Is this tide changing? What's very interesting is that this has gone from grassroots up into corporate America, and corporate America is doing what lawmakers have been failed to do for all these years. So they're putting a stake in the ground. They've drawn a very definitive line in the sand, and here are the people who are the distributors of this merchandise. So when the distributors put their foot down and say, we're not doing it anymore, and we're not going to wait for you anymore, lawmakers need to take a very serious and hard look at this because they cannot be seen as being out of step. Now, Trump is saying what Trump is saying today, but, you know, that could all change tomorrow. That being said, it can't sit well with the NRA. It can't sit well with the NRA, and everybody thought that, you know, and everybody thinks the NRA is too big to fail. 
But, you know, when you have grassroots anger that you cannot control through ads or through advocacy, you know, it's very hard for them to stay ahead of this message. They are really on their heels. From a crisis communications perspective, and it seems odd to be talking about crisis communications and defending, you know, helping out the NRA, but they really need to look at their messaging. And But the problem is, is they're never going to veer off of it. You know, the Second Amendment, you know, the right to bear arms is what they, you know, what their whole platform is based upon. And it's not the guns, it's the people shooting them, and it's a mental health issue. But people aren't buying that anymore. So as grassroots tends to chip away, they can't control everybody who's talking about this. And they certainly have no control over corporate America. And that's where you see that, or you've got to believe that there's a lot of meetings going on right now at the NRA figuring out what to do. And, you know, the message is quite simple, especially from people like uh, Dix. It's like, we don't want to be associated with the next mass shooting. The last thing we need is the headline saying they bought the gun from Dix. I mean, it doesn't get any simpler than that, no matter what your view is on the Second Amendment. Well, it doesn't get any simpler than that. And what's interesting is that, you know, when corporations take a moral stand, it's got to be a stand that they know will have ramifications down the road and it can't just be the flavor of the day. So I would hope that Walmart and Dix and right now uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op have taken a good hard look at saying, okay, we're not going to represent these manufacturers. We're putting our foot down. But, you know, when they do something like that, it can have reverberations into business further along down the road. Will it be negative? I mean, surprised to see Walmart take the same reaction. I'm guessing a lot of the Walmart customers in the South are, are you know, card-carrying gun uh, gun holders. So are, are they worried that there might be a backlash here? That, you know, Listen, even, if even, if they buy, even, <laughs> even if they buy their firearms at Walmart or not, they'll be looking at as someone who's trying to pee on the movement. Yeah, I don't know. I think that if you want your... Uh, paper towels in bulk, you're still going to go to Walmart, Scott, whether or not you're there to buy your firearms or not. I, you know, I think that you, when you look at the, and it also depends where, you, I think this is also very much a rural versus urban issue too, but, you know, when you look at, when you take the pulse of public sentiment right now, you have to think that these corporations are on the side of right and they believe they're on the side of right. And I think that for the percentage of customers that they believe they may lose, I think that the good outweighs the bad. What about Trump saying in this in in this uh, meeting the other day, and another uh, meeting between both sides in front of the cameras and such, uh, I'm the only one that's not scared of the NRA around here, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's what he said. What are you so scared of the NRA for? Uh, clearly, you know, even the Stephen Colbert's of the world are sitting there, what? What just happened here? Does he play both sides of the fence and then say to them off, you know, in a private meeting, oh, don't worry about that, it's just all a show? Yeah, it's hard to speculate what that is, because I think what he's saying right now is very, very popular. I'd be interested to know if that's very popular among his base. My guess is that, first of all, this doesn't represent the Republican Party line on guns. Uh, He is obviously going rogue. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham basically said, you know, um, President Trump is saying things that he shouldn't be saying right now. So, you know, he's out on his own with this. But, you know, Trump, he has his own mind about what he's going to do and what he's going to say. And nobody's going to tell him otherwise. Uh, Walmart, obviously a huge retailer. Uh, any sign that this will spread, especially having, uh, um, you know, a business like that, of that size, of that magnitude on board? You know, I think that when you look at businesses like this, they are very, very large and can probably take the hit. As for your mom and pop shops that do this, I don't know if it's going to spread that far. 
But it will be interesting to see in the in the coming days and weeks if there are any other large, major, significant retailers that whose word has an impact um, and ha- and uh, helps engage others to fall in line. That will be interesting to see. In the end, do you think the NRA will say, all right, no checks for anyone, and this will all fall to the ground? I don't know. Isn't that interesting? But everybody's, you know, on a list and has been pointed out and who takes money from the NRA. So I think that any candidate or any member sitting yeah. in the, as the Senate or the House of Representatives has to really look at that. And people will vote. People will vote with their feet and they'll vote with their conscience. So um, right now, all signs point to point against being affiliated with the NRA, and it might be uh, sort of a, a self-implosion of their mandate. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, PR and pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A poll suggests that in the PC race, Doug Ford and Christine Elliott are neck and neck. Uh, after the debate, where do we go from here? Let's bring in Christo Avali, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Christo, thanks for taking the time. We always appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts on uh, the debate last night? Uh, any clear winner in your uh, thoughts? Well, I don't think so. I think, you know, each of them kind of had their moments. You know, it was a bit chaotic. You know, it's, it's hard because... You know, it's all happening so fast, and, you know, none of them are, you know, in the NDP, the most recent big race, we had the NDP leadership race, and four to, three of the four candidates who ended up finishing the thing were in caucus. They were pretty big members of the NDP caucus. You know, they all had, you know, important critic roles. And then you had Jagmeet Singh, who was kind of an outsider in a sense, but, you know, was a, an NDP uh, deputy leader here in Ontario. But with this, it's like you have four people who you know, in a traditional sense, aren't the kind of people who would run for leader. So it's really hard to track things. And I think it's really hard for 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 each other to, to, to attack one another, or critique one another. But it's also hard, I think, for, for viewers, for potential voters in the leadership race to really, you know, assess, you know, who's the person that's going to give us the best chance to win in uh, in the summer. Under situations like that, Christo, does that automatically work to the towards work in favor of the person that has the most experience? And you know, and I'll point to somebody like a Christine Elliott. You know, I think experience certainly has a a role there. You want to show a couple things. You know, in in a moment like this, you want to show that you got stewardship, that you know you're able to uh, carry the party through any situation, which is important with any leader, but especially with this party right now. You need somebody who says, I got a firm hand on the wheel. Uh, and you also want somebody who can point to, you know, a record of some kind of public service uh, that they that they can uh, draw upon and say, you know, I have experience in this. And to some degree, you know, Doug Ford can do that as well, where he can say, you know, I'm a, I'm a longtime city councillor. It's not the same as being premier, of course, but he can say, you know, I have I, I have knowledge working within an environment and, and getting things done. And, and I think in that sense, it could be reassuring to potential voters to say, look, none of these people are, you know, from the caucus right now, but, you know, we got to pick someone and maybe somebody who's got a bit of legislative experience and even at the municipal level is, is something worth considering. Uh, in the end, Christo, is anybody watching this stuff other than people like you and I or, or, or those that are interested in such things? How does this resonate in the general public? You know, I mean, in terms of you know raw numbers, of course, I mean you know I guess you might see in the in you know in the coming weeks you might see viewership data. I'm not sure about that, 
but you know, in general, I think you're right. It's mostly you know politicos uh, and maybe you know dedicated progressive conservative members uh, who watch this sort of thing. And I assume that's the same with the the previous NDP leadership base as well. And I think you know, I think a lot of Canadians are engaged. A lot of Canadians care about their politics. But you know, I think in terms of internal party debates, they're usually a more kind of narrow affair. And especially with this one, again, on the one hand, you might think well, this is all very exciting. You might just tune in just to see what happens. Do, yeah, good, good point, Christo. I mean, is this one drawing more attention to itself or the obvious scandal involved? You know, it might be. In terms of media coverage, I think it, I think it is. Um, I, I, I think this is getting more coverage than the initial leadership race, you know, that put Patrick Brown in the leadership. That's a know, very valid point. Yeah. That's very, yeah, yeah, you're right. But, but, you know, on the other hand, it's like, you know, people... Like, this is all happening very fast. And it's like, if you're not kind of tuned in, it's like you even know the debate happened last night. It's like, I'm not sure, honestly. It's just, it's such a unique scenario. We've never seen anything like it in modern Canadian politics. Uh, How does the opposition view this? What do they take from what they saw last night? You know, I think it gives them the ability... Uh, in, in, even in a more direct sense than than usual, to have some of the the attack done for them, you know, in any kind of leadership race, especially when it's a close, hotly contested one, there's always the risk, in a sense, that you know um, your 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 fellow challengers uh, and are going to basal attacks. And I think in this case, that's certainly uh, butted five again because we're so close to the election, and none of these people in a direct sense at the at Queen's Park or in Ottawa, uh, have a kind of established record that they can point to, kind of paint an image of when their public image is relatively, you know, uh, unsketched. And I think that's kind of clear that, you know, they all they all see the special moment. None of them to be an MP, let alone a, a or an MPP, let alone a, a premier, uh, you know, two months ago. And now they are in first place in the polls. And it's the tense debate. They they want to seize that moment. So there was a lot of attacks on, uh, you know, professional levels and quasi personal levels that you know is it, you could be damaging going forward. Obviously, uh, prior to all of this, and I guess right up until they choose a leader, uh, PC party appears in disarray. Uh, platform changes, who the leader is, what have you. That being said, does it create the same sort of challenge for the opposition, whose target has now changed? Therefore, the tactic may change. Uh, is 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 this a new slate for everybody heading into the final stretch? I guess here. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, certainly, certainly, it's it's. It's a change-up, if you will. It's like you know, if you're a you're a boxer or something, and, and yeah. your opponent drops out, you might be in good shape. You're in general good fight shape, ready for the fight. But if you have three weeks to train for a new opponent, you are going to have, in a sense, uh, you know, difficulties doing it. I'd rather be in the NDP and the Liberal position than the Progressive Conservative position. But you're right; there are some unique challenges here because because you have to think uh, in various ways that the all the parties had built up, you know, both their policy platforms and how they want to sell them, but also anticipating the general arguments and tone and philosophy of their opponents and how they can pick that apart and neutralize it and what have you. And with a new leader, and as you know, potentially, uh, you know, depending on who wins and in what ways, we're not sure, um, a new policy platform that could make it difficult to kind of go on the fly. 
Did the PC party implode last night? I mean, uh, obviously that's an opportunity for the uh, opposition, but does any of this dirty laundry matter until Election Day? Was there more love in the room, or will there be after this is all over? You know, I think, I think, I don't think they imploded last night. This is, you know, you know, a few, you know, you know, cutting remarks here and there maybe aren't ideal. You might want to see something more collegial, especially in a, a kind of uh, such a quick race. But you know, it, it, you know, this this compared to what Pat, what happened with Patrick Brown is is relatively nothing. I mean, that's you know, the party um, you know won't die because the debate was a little bit you know uh, harsh last night. I, I I do think that. There is an opportunity here for the winner of this race. One of the things they'll have is that, you know, none of their opponents will be in the caucus either. You know, so if Doug Ford or Christine Elliott, who, as you noted, are the the front runners, they win the leadership. They'll go right into campaign mode uh, and they'll be able to hopefully build a team from within that caucus. uh, And they won't have one of their opponents uh, in the caucus, you know, challenging them in terms of, you know, will this lead to, Harmony, I mean, who knows? I mean, with the NDP leadership race, it largely did. Um, uh, Singh, you know, incorporated a lot of his challengers into party roles and and did that quite effectively. And, and, you know, his leadership hasn't been questioned since. But this will all depend. And one thing it might depend on as well, uh, you know, Doug Ford's brought this up, is that there's concerns about the validity of the vote. And if this is close... And then any other controversy about, well, was the vote rigged or is the process broken and did somebody win undeservedly? And that could just kind of keep the fire rolling. Whereas if somebody, and it doesn't appear to be so, but somebody was able to win on the first ballot with, you know, like Jagmeet Singh did, then, you know, controversy will largely go by the wayside because their mandate will be rock solid. So uh, pollsters are saying at this point, uh, uh, giving uh, pretty much a tie between Ford and Elliott, giving Ford uh, the edge. What does someone like a Caroline Mulroney have to do? You know, I, find, I think she has to find a way of, of mobilizing some of the infrastructural support she has into generating some energy. She's raised a ton of money, like a lot of money. She's raised, uh, I think, somewhere north of $700,000 in such a short-term period it's really it's it's quite impressive, um, but there's you know there's a there's a difficulty there in the fact that it doesn't seem to be manifesting in a lot of support, and I think she needs to get her energy up. I think she needs to find a way to relate um, with the average conservative voter, um, and I don't know if she's quite there yet. Uh, An experience showing, do you think, Christo? To a certain degree, uh, uh, to a certain degree, I think that's a big part of it. I know she has the name. And I know comparisons were made to Justin Trudeau, but Justin Trudeau, you know, was in Parliament since, you know, since the mid-2000s, 2008, I believe he came in. So, you know, uh, you know it, there's, a, there's a big difference there. And I feel that right now she certainly has a lot of support from the kind of interests that, that would be, uh, you know, very helpful if one was to be premier of this province. She has support from, you know, professionals and the people who, kind of, who can donate money but does she have support of the kind of people who are the rank and file members of the party? And just as importantly, the kind of people who are going to knock on the doors and lick the stamps and all of those sorts of things, uh, call the phones uh, to, uh, to pull out the vote and, and win this. And right now it looks like she's, she's riding behind Elliot and Ford, who, again, while not having a whole lot of provincial experience themselves, um, 
you know, seem to have more of a natural cultivated base based on their experiences generally with Ontario politics. How do these candidates support the carbon tax issue? Um, you know, most said they were they weren't in favor of it. Uh, that being said, the old Brown platform uh, is expecting some revenue from it. How do they settle this issue, especially with the prime minister saying he will impose one if you don't have one? Well, you know, that's a, that the first point is, a, is the second point is a big one. Again, there's the, the whole jurisdictional battle. You can make the argument and there could be court challenges. You're right that it could be a moot point in terms of of, you know, the federal if the government's able to say this is federal jurisdiction, you know, much like the pipeline debate out with BC and Alberta, you know, that we don't know how that'll play out, but that's a big that's a big factor, but I think you're right. I think in a sense the Brown platform was predicated at least in terms of its of its, you know, marketing as, you know, a relatively moderate platform. You know, we're going to, you know, cut some taxes, but we're going to get some revenue through the carbon tax. And he says, we're going to use that revenue to ensure that we don't make drastic cuts, that this is not a Tim Hudak or a Mike Harris type conservative party. This is something more akin to a Bill Davis. Um, and that was, you know, not uncontroversial within the party. So I think you see in people rejecting the carbon tax, trying to appeal to the conservative base. But unlike, again, if you're running for leader three years before the election, there's not a lot of time to run on something and then kind of smooth it over for the average liberal or NDP or independent voter who, you know, doesn't want to see too drastic a change, maybe, um, you know, in terms of cutting jobs and, and cutting public services. And, and that's going to be a real challenge, because, again, if you oppose the carbon tax and you don't want to make the kind of drastic cuts that Tim Hudak wanted to make, then, you know, people might be questioning, you know, is this person just trying to sell me snake oil or what's their actual real motive? Will we still see the Bill Davis approach, do you think, after uh, the leadership uh, election? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know, I think in terms of opposing the carbon tax, you might see a walk back depending on who wins. I'm really not sure. Uh, again, I think that, you know, there was the platform was created. It was deliberate. It was, you know, Brown, in a sense, left them something. And it was, you know, a more or less workable platform uh, that they could use, you know, whether, you know, and, and, and probably find some kind of success with it. And if you abandon one of the key forms of revenue raising, uh, you're in big trouble in that sense. And, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable for someone to win and to say when they meet with the caucus and the caucus says, look, you know, there's no way to do this without that. Or we have to, again, run a Tim Hudak style campaign, which, which didn't work. Um, and I think that they would be wise to to at least uh, lean heavily on the Brown platform uh, and then you know, look to make adjustments from within that. Uh, the sex ed curriculum came up uh, uh, in the leadership uh, race last night, debate, sorry, last night. Uh, will they pretty much stay away from that? I'm realizing that this is a thread the liberals are using to tug or will use to tug on. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this is this is the eternal struggle with a, with a with a leadership debate in a party nomination, the kind of voters you're going to have are not necessarily reflective of the general electorate. Yeah. And there's probably a wider proportion of conservatives who care about this issue and think that the sex ed, maybe it's not, maybe it's not evil. I know most people don't think that, but they think it was inappropriate or they think it's promoting, you know, a certain social justice agenda that they don't, they don't support or they feel that goes against their family or religious values or what have you. Um, 
And, you know, to appeal to those people, that's a helpful tool. It's a wedge issue, you can say. It's like the carbon tax. We're going to break Justin Trudeau's, you know, uh, tax increase, or we're going to fight Kathleen Wynne's, you know, politically a PC sex ed reform. But again, once you go to the race, one of the things that's a big deal uh, is that there's a fear of the conservatives, on both on economic, but I think largely on social issues, being too extreme in terms of their right-wing rhetoric and policy. And if you run on, you know, we oppose the sex ed reform and we have to change it, we're going to go back to the old ways, um, and then have to go to a debate with Andrea Horowath and Kathleen Wynne, uh, it's going to be very difficult to to sell that, again, to the average voter that the conservatives need to form government or to, you know, to say, turn a majority uh, minority into a, uh, a majority. And I think that's something that that's largely a political loser for them outside of a, you know, a intra-party debate. How do you think Doug Ford is faring so far? Are Ontarians learning more about him? When he first entered the race, uh, you could see some of the, you know, conservatives, oh my goodness, this is going to be a distraction, look out. But mind you, that was way before Patrick Brown's situation, uh, which obviously, you know, he took the attention away. Uh, Are are we viewing Ford differently now? You know, I I think a lot of people are. I think, you know, it was a bit of a... Some people, you know, chuckled up, you know, about about it. But then a lot of us, you know, myself included, say, look, I don't necessarily think he was the favorite. Maybe I was wrong about that even. But I said, don't, 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 don't laugh this guy out. I no. mean, Trump is president, right? And, and Doug Ford is is more, you know, has much more political experience than, than Trump did. You know, I think that Doug Ford picked a, a good moment to run for this, is that in a more traditional race, he might be more exposed. His limitations... His somewhat his somewhat checkered past, the fact that he has a lot of the controversies that his brother did, but without the kind of inherent likability. But you know, in this kind of race where you know there's four neophytes running, and there's 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 a guy who was you know, kicked out of his job, but said he didn't get kicked out, and then tried to run again, and then it was said he was allowed, and then said he wasn't, and and, and all of that, I think Doug Ford's able to kind of he was able to set his feet. And say, look, I'm running for this. And and then when people started paying attention, uh, he was made to be a more or less credible candidate, according to the according to the polling. Which, again, we, we don't know how 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 valid it is. You know, polling for party inter-party debates is uh, leadership races can be a little bit volatile in comparison to you know more general polling. But you know, I think yeah, I think he's definitely been able to uh, build up some credibility, and you know, he could win this. He really could. Christo Abelis is with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in History at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the conversation. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.